Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Good evening. By pressing play, you've unlocked a door with the key of imagination. Beyond is another dimension, a dimension of sound, a dimension of mind. You're moving into a land of both shadow and substance things and ideas. Welcome to Agoraphobia, the Agora Podcast Network's spooktacular month of ghoulishly engaging content, celebrating the spirit of the Halloween season. So turn on all the lights, check all the closets and cupboards, look under the beds, and continue, if you dare. Here now comes Thomas Daly with a tale of Massachusetts, the land of the sacred cod, where the Adamses snub the abbots and the Cabots walk with God. Between Daniel Day-Lewis's iconic performance in the 1996 film, The Crucible, and its 1953 predecessor, the legendary stage adaptation by the same name, from American playwright Arthur Miller, most people probably believe that they have a pretty good handle on the basic facts of the Salem Witch Trials. I don't have any polling to prove this, but I'd wager that most people don't actually have a firm grasp of the fundamentals of this dark event from American history. In fact, I'm confident many would not be able to correctly state the five W's, the elemental information needed to understand any issue, who, what, when, why, and where. Now. This audio essay isn't meant to shame anyone for not knowing something, or pretend I'm special for knowing something they may not. This is me preaching with the fervor of the converted. I say I know because I consider myself to be a well-read, intelligent, and curious student of history in general, but American history in particular, and I too fell into this category until embarrassingly late in life. And I'd like to share this tidbit with you, dear listeners, if for no other reason than to give you a new anecdote for your Halloween parties. So with that, let's go through this together. I imagine we all probably know the who, the puritanical religious extremists who established the Massachusetts Bay Colony, but it's okay if a few of you use the less accurate but proximal term, pilgrim. We likely have the what. The Salem Witch Trials, of course, an epidemic of mass hysteria that resulted in the hanging of 14 women and 5 men, the pressing death of one other man, plus at least another 5 who died in jail. 
Then there's the when. Now, back in school, I had many teachers tell me that memorizing all the dates really isn't what history is about. And in that spirit, I'm just going to tell you this happened between February 1692 and May 1693. Of special interest is always the why, and reasons are manifold. In 1689, England's premier power couple, William and Mary, went to war with France, like English monarchs do, this was known as King William's War to American Colonists, and it caused significant dislocation throughout upstate New York, Nova Scotia, and Quebec, sending refugees into Essex County, and specifically Salem Village in Massachusetts Bay Colony. This led to a strain of local resources, which gave rise to latent tensions and simmering rivalries, all things that will happen when a population is struggling and looking for explanations for life's disappointments. When this happens within a community where religious zealotry isn't exactly a stranger, and where there's a commonly held belief that the devil could, in fact, empower witches to harm others, happening at the same time, a European witchcraft craze was just wrapping up after nearly 300 years and tens of thousands of executions. For these people to blame the devil and his minions for the crappiness of life isn't as big a logical leap as it would be for us living on the other side of the scientific revolution. Speaking of science, one interesting theory put forward in 1976 by psychologist Linda Caporeal explains that the strange behavior of the colonists in this period could be from consuming food contaminated by a fungus called ergot. Toxicologists say ingesting ergot can lead to muscle spasms, vomiting, delusions, and hallucinations. It just so happens that ergot can be found in rye, wheat, and other cereal grasses, and happens to thrive in warm and damp climates, not unlike the marshy lands surrounding Salem Village, where rye was a staple grain, and man, what a long, strange trip it's been. Unusually, the W that really steals the spotlight in this story, however, is where. On the surface, this seems absolutely crazy. What do you mean, where? Salem, Massachusetts. Duh. You know, Salem, the Massachusetts coastal town established in 1626, where there's a neighborhood called Witchcraft Heights, where the high school's mascot is a witch, and where the police and the local newspaper both use witches in their logos. Salem, where they put up a statue of actress Elizabeth Montgomery, who played Samantha in Bewitched to mark the show's 40th anniversary. Salem, the town that holds a month-long celebration which draws more than one million visitors from all over the world every October for parades, street fairs, tourist traps, reenactments, film screenings, museums, and tours, generating nearly $140 million in tourism spending and supporting about 1,000 local jobs annually. You know the one right? Wrong. You see, the Salem, Massachusetts, where all the things I just said happen, and where they sell that cool-ass t-shirt showing a silhouette of a witch riding a broom and says, Salem, a wicked good time, used to be referred to as Salem Town. And while there are some neat historical anecdotes about Salem Town, such as it being the home of the Peabody Essex Museum and it being the birthplace of Nathaniel Hawthorne, Something that most certainly never happened there were the Salem Witch Trials. No, all that happened about four and a half miles west, in a place called Salem Village. The lands there had been settled since the 1630s, 
and the name was established in 1672 when it became a separate parish from Salem Town, with its inhabitants allowed to build their own meeting house and hire a minister. Much confusion is undoubtedly caused by the fact that politically, Salem Village was still part of Salem Town, even though they were increasingly administered separately. Up to the 1750s, the village parish was demonstrably self-governing, winning the right to supervise its own schools, while independently paying all costs associated with keeping its own church and ministers. At the same time, they continued paying taxes for the municipal expenses of Salem Town, and annual town meetings were held in Salem Town also. During these town meetings, elections were held for the various town officers, and though Salem Village sometimes had residents represented as selectmen or as other town officers, the fact that all town business and town meetings were conducted solely in Salem Town meant that only a small number of parish men could take the time and trouble to travel to Salem for these meetings and elections. And unless you have, like me, had the misfortune of living under a town meeting form of government, let me just tell you, it's not all Gilmore Girls, Stars Hollow Whimsy, and that Alexi de Tocqueville is full of shit, man. Town meeting governments are dominated by those who are able to show up for them, and from my experience, tends to exclude people who can't easily attend those meetings. And in full sympathy with the residents of Salem Village, let me tell you, it's no surprise that with the greater population and closer proximity, it was Salem Town who invariably formed a majority at these meetings and who therefore decided upon all political and community matters. This was taxation without representation before it was cool. After years of legal wrangling and circumventing a royal prohibition on the creation of new towns, on January 31, 1752, Salem Village did eventually win its independence from Salem. Now here's where it gets truly slippery. With independence came an opportunity for a fresh start, for rebranding. But the published act, which the governor signed, that granted independence to Salem Village, didn't actually name the new entity. It left a blank space. The name Danvers was, at some point, written in by hand. Why the name change? Well, outside of constructing a very nice memorial to the victims of the witch trials in 1992 to commemorate the 300th anniversary of those events, Danvers and its residents aren't really looking for recognition or notoriety. Some who still live there are related to some of the accused or the accusers. Locals also know that Salem is kind of a shit show every October, and Danvers opts instead for a quiet, suburban existence. It's really only a sort of disgust on my part of Salem's gratuitous rapacity, willful deceit, and dishonorable profiteering off of a historical tragedy that makes it important to put the real wear of this story in the proper context. And so, there's the big reveal. If you want to go to the place where the Salem witch trials were held, you have to go to Danvers, Massachusetts. This is where you can see Rebecca Nurse's homestead. Here is where the accusers and victims mostly lived and died. Nearby Andover, where you can visit John Proctor's house, deserves a shout-out as well as many of the accused resided there. But wait, there's one last bit of weirdness you should take with you before you go. 
Just where the heck did the name Danvers come from anyway? Turns out, it has no real local roots. Wasn't really to do with any local English settler, nor was it a native name familiar to inhabitants of Essex County. Historian Richard B. Trask has written, Naming of new districts and towns was the traditional prerogative of the sitting chief executive, guided by whatever local concerns or traditions or provincial politics might come into play. The old name, Salem Village, was too close to the name of the mother town and would cause confusion. The villagers would also be pleased to be rid of this title of Salem Village, which name was well known and had been published far and wide as the place associated with the horrifying witch times of 1692, only 60 years earlier. It would appear that Lieutenant Governor Spencer Phipps, or one of his counselors, suggested the name Danvers as a means of honoring an old and influential, though somewhat obscure, English patron family. Much memorialization of an influential, politically connected name given to a newly created district or town by an 18th century power broker was more typical than not. During the 17th century, most Massachusetts communities and areas were given names reflecting geographical locations in Old England, familiar to the new settlers, or retained some form of original aboriginal names. By the 18th century, communities were more likely named after influential persons. It just so happens that a descendant of the Danvers family, Sir Danvers Osborne, happened to land on the right side of the Jacobite Rebellion of 1745 and was a rising star. By 1753, he was recommended to be the next royal governor of the province of New York. Danvers Osborne arrived in New York on October 6th, and he formally assumed his office on October 10th. On October 12th, 1753, Osborne's dead body was found in the garden of the house where he was lodging, quote, strangled in his handkerchief, end quote, an allusion to suicide. He had been described as melancholy since the passing of his wife a decade earlier, and there are suggestions he may have made two prior attempts to take his own life. In reporting Osborne's death to London, Lieutenant Governor James Delancey observed that although Osborne expressed his sense of the people's joy upon his ascension to the government in the most engaging manner, yet he never showed any cheerfulness, but appeared with a sedate and melancholy countenance, complaining of a great indisposition of body and disturbance of mind which could not be diverted. So, great job on picking a new name with no baggage, as part of a fresh start. Maybe third time's a charm? Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Since 2013, Bombas has donated over 100 million socks, underwear, and T-shirts to those facing homelessness. 
If we counted those on air, this ad would last over 1,157 days. But if we counted the time it takes to make a donation possible, it would take just a few clicks. Because every time you make a purchase, Bombas donates an item to someone who needs it. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST, code ACAST. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. The next agoraphobia offering is laid upon the altar by none other than our interlocutor of the obscure, Professor Claude Myron Goozer. Okay, let's make a slasher film. We have five kids. Roger Ebert referred to them as dead teen films, so case taken. Maybe late teens, maybe early 20s. All played by 35-year-olds. The hot girl, the hot guy, the stoner, the person of color, and the final girl. They're outsiders, and we take them someplace they don't belong. They go to the woods, far out from civilization, where they can engage in antisocial behaviors out away from the privileges and technological comfort, and they end up trespassing to a place they're not wanted. Or they sneak into an old abandoned house way on the outskirts of town. Or they go messing around the old abandoned mine. Or they sneak into the mall after hours. Or they climb the fence to check out that old dilapidated fairground. All for the sake of some antisocial behaviors, or antisocial behaviors according to the prudish moral standards of the typical slasher film. The stoner and the person of color smoke up or maybe just get drunk. The hot guy and hot girl find a secluded place to have sex, thereby giving us a glimpse of titillating flesh. Only the final girl refuses to engage and thereby earns her survival. One by one, generally starting with the person of color, our party is dispatched in gruesome and creative fashion. The person of color is killed first as a backwards way of the film trying to display its own version of social and cultural acceptance. The film is fine with non-white characters, it wants to say, but then dispatches with the non-white character in a move that shows it doesn't think of the character as an actual human. Though, with the other characters being no more than stereotypes either, this dehumanizing move ultimately shows how little the film really cares for anyone. It's a stab at equality, if you'll pardon the pun. The stoner is dispatched next to provide ample space for ample flesh from the amorous couple in the other room. The sexually active pair will have time at least to disrobe, and then they too are dispatched. The final girl gives the killer a run for his money, and ultimately does him in, or simply outlasts him. And that brings us to the killer. He has to be distinctive. Some mask or some disfigurement he moves slowly, except when he doesn't, and always seems to be right there. He has some particular instrument of death, maybe a tool of some sort, a piece of farm equipment or something associated with labor, a pickaxe. 
signifying that he is of or acquainted with lower class work or of the place in some way. A place that is not urban or suburban and refined, but rustic and out of time. A place of others, a place outsiders aren't welcome, and for outsiders, for their trespasses, they're banished. Those are the rules, right? A genre has to have rules, and these are more or less the rules of the slasher film. They were ubiquitous when Wes Craven's Scream incorporated commentary on these tropes into the film itself, and though Scream is more of a suburban hunt and kill in the mode of Halloween rather than depending on trespassing as the initiating transgression, it still operates generally as a morality tale aware of its own moralizing. Joss Whedon's 2011 film Cabin in the Woods took it a step further, glorifying these tropes just for the sake of offering meta-commentary on the tropes with an attempt to think through just what the cinematic appeal of the slasher film really is. As glossy and glib as the film is, it has the stunning candor to come right out and say that slasher films are a form of human sacrifice, a sadistic cinematic display of schadenfreude. We watch those we hate get dispatched for doing the things we want to do, for engaging in the antisocial behaviors we all feel drawn to. They die, so we can feel morally superior, and the more gruesome the demise, the more we delight. In the terms of that film, the gods are appeased as the formula is fulfilled. So genre's fate, in a way. The 80s saw an explosion of slasher films. They were cheap, formulaic, and easy to pump out. There are variations and permutations. The Nightmare on Elm Street films are suburban slashers that play in the supernatural, but they still mostly operate according to the rules. The Friday the 13th films cycle through the format again and again. My Bloody Valentine incorporates a famous holiday and a pickaxe. The 90s were maybe ironic, but they still contained the kernel of the morality tale. I know what you did last summer is a little more chaste, but still works as, you know, just desserts for transgression. Scream subverts, but only to a point. The final girl is allowed to become initiated into sexual activity and survive, but the murder spree is instigated by the sexual transgressions of her mother and the father of another character, suggesting that the whole thing operates like some version of familial tragic fate, the House of Atreides, but with more cell phones and ghost face masks and less besieging of Troy and axe murders in a bathtub. You know, the killers in Scream use a knife. The generally acknowledged father of the slasher film is John Carpenter's Halloween, and Carpenter has resisted attempts to read the film in a simple moralistic light. Jamie Lee Curtis's Laurie Strode is a prototypical final girl who does the right thing, quote-unquote, she carefully watches the kids she's babysitting and foregoes sexual activity, and in the end finds a way to outwit Michael Myers. But Carpenter has suggested that the morality aspect is incidental, and that his intention was to illustrate the threat of random violence he felt was palpable in American society, particularly the society of the South in which he was raised. Uh, in Carpenter's rendering, Laurie Strode manages to outwit Michael Myers, not because she's chaste, but because she's observant. Where everyone else is distracted, she pays attention. This seems fair enough description, especially owing to the fact that the filmmaker himself is making it. But a nihilistic, chaotic universe where violence is right around the corner or maybe even inherent in the landscape or in the people. An amoral world where horrible things just happen. 
That seems less a description of Halloween and more a description of the grandfather of all slasher films, the film that seemingly laid out the tropes in the first place, then refused to play by the genre rules it set up. I'm talking about that grimy, greasy, extremely violent, though very rarely gory, drive-in masterpiece, The Texas Chainsaw Massacre. So most of the younger kids I talk to, I, I'm an English instructor, I love to ask my students about movies, and in fall semester horror comes up often. When they talk about the Texas Chainsaw Massacre, they talk about the 2003 Marcus Niceville-directed, Michael Bay-produced glam glore revisioning that, ironically, completely misses the point of the original. Okay, so I'm not here to bash that film. I mean, not necessarily. It, it has its defenders. But I do want to use it as a point of contrast because it reveals so much about how the Texas Chainsaw Massacre operates, how the original one operates. The 2003 film was made after the slasher genre had already solidified into widely acknowledged and sometimes derided tropes. The parameters were already tired, and the gruesome twists and turns of the original were public property at that point, public domain. What else could the film do but be a tired rehash of the slasher film tropes? They dispense with the person of color, but they have a group of kids, burnouts, knowingly or unknowingly involved in a drug deal. Passing through a small Texas town, they ironically deride, trespass into a horrific situation, and one by one get torn to shreds until the final girl outwits the chainsaw-wielding maniac, as well as his law enforcement relative, who's pursuing them and drive into the safety of the darkness of the long road ahead. It's, it's a really paint-by-numbers. A gorier paint-by-numbers, we have the discomforting audacity of a shot that tracks through the massive gunshot wound in the head of a suicide victim, but still a paint-by-numbers slasher film. The original, not so much. The inciting incident of the original film is the desecration of a cemetery. An unknown person later suggested to be a demented hitchhiker picked up by our party, has snuck into a graveyard, dug up several coffins, mutilated the bodies, and then positioned several together as a kind of sculpture. The teens don't seem to be teens or protagonists. They seem more like 20-somethings, more mature than the typical slasher film college students, and they're not outsiders, not exactly. Sally, our final girl, because there still is a final girl of sorts, and her disabled wheelchair-bound brother Franklin are on their way to the cemetery to make sure that their father's grave was not, well, grandfather's grave, was not one of the desecrated ones. Though they haven't visited in a while, they are connected to the place and the culture. There's little sense that this is a film meant to critique or denigrate the rural places of America as so much hinterlands, as slasher films often do. There may be a critique. There is kind of a critique. But it's a more complicated critique of ingrained American behaviors and ideologies. Okay, so they're, they're not exactly young and they're not exactly outsiders. They're also not acting out our antisocial desires for the sake of the audience's sadistic thrill at their punishment. There's no sex in the Texas Chainsaw Massacre. None. Four of the party are couples, and they do go off together, but not to titillate our puritanical sensibilities. The party 
after the cemetery visit, heads to Sally and Franklin's grandparents' old house where they used to spend summers as a kid, or as kids. It's a reconnection. On the way, they operate in good faith, picking up a hitchhiker who immediately begins creeping them out with tales from the slaughterhouse. He then pulls the knife and they kick him out of the van. They drive looking for gas, but the only gas station run by a seemingly kindly old guy who warns them away from visitor, visiting their grandfather's house is out. When they make it to the old house, their concerns are for reminiscing, for searching for the old creek to cool off, and for looking for any possibility of fuel for the van. Practical concerns. When the couples break off, they do so to see if they can find gas, not to hook up. The usual motivations for punishing the protagonists really fail to materialize. That makes the film feel less like justified punishment and more like an irrational, chaotic, sadistic torment for no reason whatsoever. Which is what the film is. When the first person is murdered, it's sudden and in broad daylight. We never get a good view of the killer, just some big guy with something weird on his face. A door opens, he appears, hits his victim on the head, then drags the body back and slams shut the door. The second victim wanders inside the house looking for the first victim and trips into a room covered in scattered bones, chicken bones, and furniture made from bone. She runs from the house, but is grabbed in broad daylight by our large killer and dragged back inside where she's dispatched. The third victim goes looking for the other two, wanders into the same house, and is killed. It gets dark, and Sally and Franklin try to go looking, and here our killer suddenly emerges in the woods, kills Franklin with a chainsaw, and we have several tormenting minutes of Sally running with the sound of the chainsaw, blaring over the soundtrack, making for a completely disorienting viewing experience. Sally emerges at the house where all her friends died, runs inside, is chased by the chainsaw-wielding villain, and ultimately jumps from a window to run out to the road back to the old gas station. The old man takes her in, promises to help, then beats her, ties her up in a sack, and drives her back to the house, his house. The house he shares with his brothers, the chainsaw-wielding maniac and the disturbing hitchhiker from earlier in the film. They also live with their grandfather, who may or may not still be alive. Um... It's up in the air. It's a parody of the self-sustaining nuclear family. This is the mirror side of Emerson. This is the American dream taken to its logical conclusion. The antisocial tendencies latent in the idea of self-reliance fully blossoming and showing the putrid results of an ideology built absolutely around the idea of absolute self-sufficiency. The money comes from the gas or from the barbecue they sell, barbecue made apparently of murder victims and corpses dug up by the brother. Self-sufficiency absolutely at the expense of the lives and dignity of others. This is the version of Emerson heartily endorsed by Randians, by modern neo-feudalists, by those for whom power and dominance are the only values worth the name. And the film never lets up. Sally is never safe. We... The viewers are never safe. There's no morality play at play. Sally and her brother and friends stumble into nihilistic destruction, and Sally accidentally stumbles out. She gets away one last time from the family of cannibals, runs to the road, flags down a truck, climbs in the back, and is driven away laughing and screaming hysterically. Leatherface, the chainsaw-wielding killer, 
dances with his chainsaw as the sun rises, either in anger or in bliss, or maybe both at once, swinging wildly and madly silhouetted against the new day. It's horrifying. Texas Chainsaw Massacre has no reason. There's no comeuppance, no just desserts, just random, chaotic, violent chance. The world of the film is not immoral, it's amoral. And even though it lays out so many of the terms of the slasher film, it adheres to almost none of them. Vacating itself from any semblance of justice, even the sadistic justice of the slasher film morality play, it exists as a testament to nothingness. In the end, the typical slasher film is an exercise in self-gratification, and the sadism is directed towards the characters on screen. We feel satisfied seeing them die. In Texas Chainsaw Massacre, the sadism is directed at us. A warm welcome back to those of you who made it back, and a little bit of advice to take with you before you go. Not all knowledge is safe, and some things you can't unhear. The smartest of you will count your blessings and stay clear of dark corners and dangerous downloads. But those of you more daring who laugh in the face of fear will undoubtedly be back like a moth drawn to the flame for the next installment of Agoraphobia. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. 